All right, everybody. Hap, hap, happy Saturday. I hope uh, hope you all had a great week. <clears throat> a couple questions this week. Um, kind of another light week, but um, something exciting. I got my copy of the Boyer Forgotten 40. Um, one of my favorite publications that I subscribe to. I can't... Uh, I can't uh, recommend it enough to you out there. There's always a couple things that are crossovers. They've had Callaway in there in the past, and Howard Hughes is in there this year, uh, amongst some other. So basically what it is, they're 40 top value picks, and they do a fantastic job of breaking down each corporation. Um, it's a lot of, a lot of research. Uh, it's one of those that's probably like 8 inches wide and about 18 inches long, the, the report. And um, they give you all the metrics, and they go out, estimates for a few years, and they break down everything, the rationale for it, and they give you price targets. I really love it. Um, so I don't know if you've seen it on the site. I did a thing with them. Yeah, you can get a free report from them on the website. Uh, there's a, there's a, one of the posts on the website on Value Place. Um, you can get a free download, and if you decide you want it, you buy the Boyer Forgotten 40, um, they will pay for your next full year of value plays. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't remember how much the report's running for. A few of you have taken advantage of this, and I know you're going to love it. I've met John Boyer, who, who does it at a value investing congress. I think we were in Vegas um, probably four or five years ago, and I've been getting the report ever since. And um, like I said, I can't recommend it enough. So... Go to the website and go to the um, go to the link, and uh, this, you know it says um, free download of Boyer Forgotten Forty and a free year value plays. And there's a link in there to follow for it, and you have to use that link, otherwise uh, they won't know where you're from and they won't be able to credit you the year value plays. Um, and you just go in there, and if you if you purchase Forgotten Forty, like I said. Uh, they will pay for your next full year of your subscription. So, and if your, your subscription doesn't end until you know May or April of this year, uh, we'll let it run to April and then and then extend it a year from April. So, whenever your subscription ends, we will we will um, extend it one year from that date. So, it's a great deal, and it's a it, I you know that and Value Line are my two my two favorite um, two favorite ways of finding ideas and researching stuff. So I'm sure I opened it up last night when I got it, went through it real quick. I had things I had to do, but I can already tell there's a couple, a few ideas, I should say, uh, that I'm going to dig a lot deeper into. And I think one of them might be coming to, to value place soon enough. So um, anyway, let's, let's get to it. So uh, two questions this week, but both of them are kind of long qu questions. So, um, and they're good questions. So um, number one is it would be helpful if you could give a brief rundown of portfolio positions that you still would buy at these levels today if you didn't already own them. It's understood that everyone is responsible for their own entries, but for newer subs that aren't long-term holders of all the portfolio at much lower levels, you view on buys versus holds, pullbacks, would be valuable for the ones that aren't obvious. For example, AIG, HHC, BAC, DTO, Apple are some of the names that aren't discussed every week, like Fannie Mae, IIPR, the Energy, etc., which are clear. That's a great question. Um, so I guess one easy way to look at it is that if you're looking at the portfolio page, obviously, 
some of the more recent purchases that are closer to their original buy point. Um, obviously, I think still have the most upside and would be buys. Um, you know, even some of the ones that have advanced a lot over the years, um, I still think are worthy of a purchase. Um, you know, for instance, even as early as the end of last year, I was recommending Compass Diversified Holdings simply because, you know, it was a roughly 8% yield at that time. Uh, they paid a regularly dividend to people, distribution to people for years. Um, and it was just a steady, solid one. I think, I think based on our purchase price, we're getting about 12% a year in the dividend, um, which is why I continue to hold it. Um, but that's recently gone up in price. So I'm not sure what the yield, current yield is now, but it's much lower. But that was one even last year that was, you know, recommending people to buy who are income oriented and, and, and wanted, um, that type of an investment. Um, I do at these levels. I do think Chesapeake is a fantastic buy, although it's a high-risk, high-reward play. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of things going on with it. Uh, they need to make some things happen, uh, sell some assets, pay off some debt, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but if they make it through this, the, the stock can go up multiples of its current price um, and uh, in very short order. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be one of those situations where uh, they get the all clear and they wake up and the stock's up a couple bucks. Um, and I'm highly confident of that scenario. So for that reason, um, I do like Chesapeake. I do still like the energy names. If we're looking at older names, you know, I don't, and I, I've said this for a long time, and there's a reason I don't do a lot of write-ups on Apple, because as far as I'm concerned, there's not a lot to say. Apple is a cash machine. Uh, they are the dominant brand in their industry. Uh, Number two is a distant second. Uh, they're expanding into more and more areas. They're doing more and more things. And they're buying back billions of stock every year. Um, it's a, you know, it, to me, you know, it, it gets a little volatile when people decide that, you know, that, um, you know, this is the end of the road for them, that kind of horse shit. Um, you know, this, this iPhone is a flop, that iPhone is a flop. But I will tell you that, you know, it's an interesting thing. I, so just last week, I had been working off a 2011 MacBook Air. Um, and it's kind of like, like your eyesight. You don't realize how much better things can be. You, know, like you, don't, you don't realize how bad your eyesight's gotten until you get glasses. And you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. Or how poorly your current car runs until you get that new one. What's well, the same thing with computers? I, I didn't realize how amazing the new, I got a new MacBook Pro laptop. And I was, I just could not believe how much better it was than the 2011. And the leaps and bounds and performance and capabilities and things like that, it's just staggering. And, and you know, they say Apple doesn't innovate and, and, and I disagree with that completely. You know, App, Apple doesn't create the new original iPhone every year. And, you know, the iPhone is obviously what it did to the cellular phone industry. It's a, it's a once in a lifetime type of invention, right? You know, you don't have flip phones anymore. You know, you don't have Blackberries anymore. I mean, they, they, every phone worth, worth anything is a, is a app based, um, you know, push phone like the iPhone. So they fundamentally changed the industry. So no, Apple's not going to create it every year. Cause you know what? It's not possible. It just isn't, but it gets better every, every year. And, and, you know, for proof, 
go get an iPhone 6 and use it and then use the iPhone, iPhone 11 that they have out now. I mean, again, it's night and day. It's, it's incremental improvements to an already outstanding product every year. They do the same thing with their iPads. The iPad Pro blows away an iPad from three years ago. And don't tell me it doesn't. You know, iPhone Watch 5 is much better than the original. I, I, I'm sorry, the iWatch, whatever it's called. Um, is much better than the original iWatch. So, and same thing with their laptops and their desktops. It's the same, same thing. So Apple does innovate. And they just produce gobs of cash. And they do smart things with their cash. They pay a decent dividend. They buy back billions of stock. They're not trying to go buy Samsung or, make, or you know, buy, they're not trying to make some $50 billion acquisition in the telecom space. It's going to be highly risky, whatever. They stick to what they know. They stick to what they do. They take the billions of dollars of cash they generate every week and they give it back to shareholders. So, I mean, I, you know, Apple was up 100 and some percent this year, last year, and that was because the autocracy sold off like everything else in December of 2018. You know, do I expect them to go up that much again this year? No, but I do expect them to buy back tens of billions of dollars worth of stock. I do expect the price to go up. I do expect the products to be good. So, I mean, that's one where, you know, I'd be comfortable owning, owning right now. Um, Howard Hughes, it's, you know, it wouldn't be my top choice to put new money into right now. I do think long-term there's value there, but I, you know, there's a lot going on there that's a lot, you know, it's not very clear. So I'd be hesitant to kind of do that. I don't think you can go wrong owning Bank of America. Bank of America is not absurdly cheap like it was back when we bought it. But Bank of America is a lot like Apple. They're buying back tens of billions of dollars worth of stock. They pay a nice solid dividend. They're producing gobs and gobs of cash. Rock solid balance sheet. And they're exposed to the U.S. housing sector, which, in my opinion, is coiled to take off. We don't have enough housing in the U.S., single-family housing. We just don't have enough. We haven't been building enough. And I think there's we're reaching a stage where things are kind of coiled and it's been pulled back and pulled back and pulled back for so long that you know, I think the home builders are going to go on a, a building spree. And I think there's so much pent-up demand for single-family homes that there's plenty of buyers for them. And I think you know, should that happen, Bank of America is your prime beneficiary of it. You know, Brian Moynihan is as boring as they come as a CEO, but you know what? I don't want a flashy banker to run my company, right? I, I want a nice, boring guy who knows banking, who's into banking, and not, you know, making headlines. We had enough of that, um, you know, Ken Lewis, you know, remember those guys? Countrywide, Mozilla, you know, we, we, we saw what those guys do. Give me a boring banker any day who doesn't care about being in the spotlight, Goes to work, does his thing, and you know what? That's Brian Moynihan. He's a great bank CEO. So, you know, uh, you know, again, if you're looking for stable, steady, growing investments, I don't know why you'd want to give up on Bank of America. I really don't. Um, DTO, 
That's the short oil ETF was another one. Um, you know, I still, so I still think the risk of oil is higher. I really do. Nothing I've seen has changed my mind. It's been very volatile the last couple of years, but I think the overall trend is going to be slightly higher oil prices. U.S. production, the growth in U.S. production is slowing. And demand is steady. And that usually means higher prices. And then, you know, you have the whole Middle East thing, which I don't think is over. I don't think it's done. I mean, Iran's been kind of poking everybody in the region for the last six, what, six, eight months now? You know? And at some point in time, some, you know, it's kind of like, you ever see like an old dog and a puppy... And the puppy kind of jumps on the old dog and nips at the old dog to get it to play. And the old dog just lays there and kind of slaps him away or whatever. And at some point in time, the big old dog gets pissed and just like snarls at the puppy or bites it or whacks it hard across it and the puppy goes running away. That's Iran. Iran's the puppy. And at some point in time, someone's going to have enough and things are going to escalate pretty quick. I don't know who it's going to be. It's going to be the U.S., Saudi Arabia. I mean... Not for nothing, but a bunch of Canadians were just killed and they shot the plane down. So, you know, who knows what Canada is. I mean, Canada is not probably going to attack anybody. Um, but, you know, they can put pressure in other countries and exacerbate um, the uh, economic um, sanctions on the country. And that could really hurt, begin to hurt Iran even more than they are now. And then you know what Iran's going to do. So... I mean, we'll see. We'll see. Um, so that's, you know, so that's where I am right now. And I don't want to talk about the ones you always talk about, you know, Williams and Kinder Morgan and TPL and stuff like that. But if you go down, you look at the, look at the most recent names that are closest to the, the whatever buy prices were. And, and if I'm still holding it, I still think it's a buy. You know, if I think something is not worth buying, then it should probably be sold, Right. So then it's a question of which ones would you buy if, if you had, you know, if you could only buy three of all the holdings, which ones would you buy? And that's how we go. AIG, you know, I, if I'm being honest about AIG, I'm, I'm just about, you know, I'm a quarter or two away from saying, you know what, this thing has run its course. Um, you know, AIG has been stuck in this range for, I don't know, it feels like three years now. And, you know, the, the, gone through CEO after CEO. You know, and every time the CEO comes in, they, they decide they're, you know, refocusing the company in a completely different direction. You know, we went from selling assets and buying back gobs of stock to now we're in growth phase and not buying back stock. And, you know, it's just, it's frustrating. Um, that being said, you know, I think, I think you pronounce it Duperall. He's got them at a position where they're, they're going to finish year in underwriting profit. And that'll be the first one they've done in a very long time. And if you can operate an underwriting profit as an insurance company, that's really good. So that should garnish the company a higher multiple. But we'll see. You know, I, that's, so that's one I wouldn't be a buyer of right now. I'm holding it. Because I think he can turn it around. I think we can start getting some momentum on the upside for the stock. But I'm not holding my breath. And 
No, I don't see, I guess I don't see any. I think if I had to look at it, I think the odds are we see higher or the same prices. I don't think it's likely, likely we see lower prices. So that's why it's kind of like, okay, let's hold this for another quarter, maybe two, see what the, see what the results turn in, see what starts happening, you know, and then make a decision then rather than what I don't want to do. And we've done this plenty of times in the past. You know, E-Trade's a prime example. We, we sold that way too early, and there were other things too. Um, you know, I don't want to say, screw it, I'm done, and he comes through the underwriting profit for the year, projects one for this year, and then the stock starts moving up through the 60s and into the 70s, and you're like, you know... If I had just given it one more quarter, I'd have, I'd have made some really good money on this thing. So, um, you know, you can afford... There's nothing I'm dying to buy right now. So you can afford to be patient with what you have. And, you know, as long as the outlook is the same or higher prices, not, oh, maybe it's going to crash, which I highly doubt EIG will, it's worth holding on for another quarter to see what happens. Okay, uh, the next one. <clears throat> this is the next question. I'm trying to understand why you invest in the oil and gas sector. The ability to predict the future price of oil or gas seems really like a crapshoot or maybe a coin toss. For example, it seems like CHK is heavily dependent on the future price of oil and gas going up, otherwise CHK will probably go BK, bankrupt. Further, for example, while KMI and W aren't dependent on the oil price of oil and gas, they sort of are as far as on determining future growth and pipeline developments relative to their competitors. To me, the ability to have success investing in oil and gas as a value investment is very difficult compared to, let's say, finance, real estate, insurance, etc. These sectors just seem less murky. One other thing, a value investment to me seems like it should be when you buy something at a right price and if things don't go according to your thesis, the investment will still still be okay, he meant, or break even. Appreciate your thoughts. So... I guess I would disagree on the first level of that we are invested in the oil and gas sector. We are primarily invested in the production and transportation of oil and gas. Or, you know, CHK, which you have a small investment in, is obviously exposed to the oil and gas sector, okay? Um, because they're, you know, they, they drill for it, they produce it, they sell it. But the bulk... I would say the vast majority of our investments aren't directly in the commodity itself. They're in the, the commodity as far as, you know, owning the land it's under. You know, TPL has no exposure to oil and gas prices um, and the transportation of it. So when you look at, so the, order, the way to look at it is, we're not exposed to the price of oil and gas. We're exposed to the demand for oil and gas, right? The more demand you have for oil and gas, the more pipelines you're going to need. The more demand you have for oil and gas, the more drilling you're going to have to have on the lands that TPL owns. Regardless of the price of the commodity, if demand is climbing every year, these investments are going to see increasing economies, economics of scale, right? They're going to, they're going to need to produce... More, they're going to need to drill for more oil and gas every year in TPL lands, and, and Kinder Morgan and Williams pipelines are going to need to transport increasing amounts of oil and gas every single year. Regardless of the price is 50, regardless of it's 60, regardless of it's 70. You can look at the historical chart of oil, oil demand, and oil demand grows 1 to 3% every single year on average. 
in, in severe recessions, it dips, but it comes right back as soon as the economy comes back. So that's what we're exposed to. You know, we don't own Chevron, Texaco, Halliburton, whatever. We're not exposed other than, again, other than, other than CHK, which is not a huge investment. We are not exposed to the price of the commodity at all. Because I agree, it is a crapshoot predicting the price. Now, you can go back and look at historical patterns and say, you know, when, you know, oil and gas, there's a, a chart out a couple weeks ago, you know, when oil and gas has gotten down to 4% weighting in the S&P, it's done that three times, um, I think, in the last 25 years. Um, it's, it's rebounded hard to the upside to almost 10 to 12 to 16% of the S&P which means all those stocks go up several times in value. You know, there's also charts showing that when you fall below the five-year average in inventories, that there tends to be a sharp correction in the price of it. Now, you can't predict the when, you don't know, but there's, you know, there's, and so I guess the, the predicting is that, you know, you can only stay below historical inventories in a commodity for so long before the price needs to reflect that. And... You know, energy is not something that you need energy. You have to have it. It's not an option. It's not a choice. Um, and when it gets that low and the S&P valuations get that cheap, right, what tends to happen? People start to realize that. You've already seen articles in the journal and New York Times about, you know, energy and energy investing and, you know, that some of these names are just trading at absurdly low multiples given the current economics of oil and you've seen some value investors start talking about putting money in so the theory is that when it gets this low in the S&P it's just so cheap that money starts flooding into them because they have solid dividends they have dividend coverage right and they're good names to own and typically when this happens you get you know technology and those names and you know your your unicorn IPOs tend to be at very high valuations, which, you know, tech is right now. Tech is, tech valuations are stretched the most they've been in a couple decades. Um, and people start rotating out of one into the other and whose valuations are not stretched at all, energy. So you get that rotation into it. So, you know, you, the daily price of oil and things like that, yeah, I, I, I agree it's flipping a coin. But I think you can look at longer term trends in oil, year to year kind of thing, and say, okay, we... We have this <clears throat> historical setup that, you know, has been, you have low CapEx, you have, you know, inventories below, with, below historically they, they've been, you know, you, you have demand still climbing and you have unrest in the Middle East that could explode to something much larger. Typically in the past, that has led to significantly higher oil prices in the future. Um, Sorry. Okay, now regarding the other one. So let's look at it, though. Let's look at oil and gas investing compared to finance. I mean, I think we just need to go back to 2009 to poke a hole in that theory, right? And insurance companies, banks, everyone in the finance industry got shellacked. We lost some of the biggest banks in the country, you know? We didn't lose Exxon. We didn't lose Texaco. We didn't lose Chevron Phillips. We didn't lose, um, uh, what's the British one? Um, the one that, uh, BP. None of the huge oil and gas majors went under, right? We lost some of the smaller players. That's the equivalent of financial crisis of a, a local credit union or a, 
you know, state bank going under. But we didn't lose any major oil and gas companies. We'd lost a hell of a lot of major banks and would have lost more. Real estate regulating at the same time, right? How many mortgage brokers went under in the financial crisis? How many small housing companies went under in the financial crisis? Lots. So I, I kind of disagree that they're less murky than oil and gas. I think actually my my opinion is oil and gas is more is more transparent and less murky than banking for sure, um, insurance for sure, right? I mean, let's be honest. If, if it wasn't for government bailouts, AIG would not exist right now. Bank of America would not exist. Morgan Stanley would have been bought was bought by Bank of America. They were gone on. They were gone. Lehman's gone. I mean, so I I can't. I can't, I can't agree with the statement that those sectors are less murky than oil and gas. I think oil and gas is, is as simple as it gets. Higher oil prices mean higher prices for the stocks. Loyal, loyal, lower oil prices mean lower prices for the stocks. It's about as simple as you can get of a relationship. Then the question is trying to see where oil is going long term. And then seeing what the, <clears throat> what the economics of the industry alike at any given time and then finding the discrepancies in those historical relationships that tell you okay this is mispriced right now this is going to go up in value i think that's the trick you know and that you know so maybe it's trying time um maybe it's trying to the time that that's hard and murky and i'll agree to that 100 percent. but i think the actual businesses themselves i mean other than enron I don't remember the last major oil and gas company that went under. <clears throat> you know, a couple went bankrupt along with Enron at that time. But, I mean, that was a, you know, that was, other, if you go back for Enron, what, what major oil and gas company has gone Chapter 11 other than that little Enron period? And a couple of them went under because they had, you know, business, they, you know, were involved with Enron and things. I mean, I can't think of any. And when I'm talking major, I'm talking the big multinationals, like the big banks. And you got five or six big banks, you got five or six big oil majors, insurance companies, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I don't remember the last big one to go under. They've merged and done things like that, but, you know, there's never been an energy company like, like, like an Exxon. You know, even, even, the, even you know, the Exxon Valdez didn't put Exxon under. The, the oil spill in the Gulf didn't put BP under. So, you know, I think finance is the most murky investment you can make because it's, it's hard insurance too. It's hard to figure out, you know, what they're invested in, what they have their money and who their counterparties are. And 2008, 2009 was a real slap in the face when it came to that. So... Um, a value investment, this is again from the question, seems to like it should be one that when you buy something at a right price and if things don't go according to your thesis, the investment is still okay or break even. In theory, that's true, <clears throat> right? <clears throat> but that's not, so if you go back to classic value investing, uh, you know, Graham and, and, and Buffett old days, um, that, that wasn't exactly the thesis, Right? 
<clears throat> it was that if you invest in value stocks, your losses are less if you're wrong than if you invest in, you know, Cisco in 1980 at 180 times earnings that loses 90%. Or even Amazon at that time that lost 60, 70, 80%. That, that's a theory, a theory, because the theory that the theory that you can be wrong in an investment and not lose money implies that you're able to purchase it at the exact bottom, which we know is just, right? It's just not, any time, if you're a value investor and you buy into a stock that you, you deem a value stock, you buy into that stock fully understanding there may be more downside, or you may not have caught the bottom. And I think it's that realization that allows people when you buy a value investment and it goes down in value to buy more of it. Like we did with GGP. Like we did when we first bought Kinder Morgan at, I think, 20 bucks. It went down to 15. We lost 25%. We bought more. Every one of those investments have turned out to be really good choices. But it was well below, 20, 30% below our initial price. Same thing with Williams. Every one of those subsequent purchases have turned out to be really good decisions, but they were 20, 30% below our initial, our initial, our initial um, purchase price. So the theory that, you know, if I'm wrong in a value investment, that I only lose a little bit of money or I don't lose any money at all, you know, I think if that's true, you're lucky, not good. Look at Bank of America, one of the best investments we ever made. You know, we bought it, I think, almost eight bucks a share. It went down to five. Almost got cut in half, 50%. What did we do? We bought more. Turned out to be an amazing buy. So, and again, you're not right or wrong on an investment until the day you sell it. Right? Because if we bought, when we first bought Bank of America, Two months later, it almost gets cut in half. Everyone's, oh, you're an idiot. You bought Bank of America. It's going under. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. Right? That's what it was. Nine years later, it's 30-some bucks a share. So you're neither right or wrong in any investment until you have the cash in your hand from that investment. Then you can say, I was right, I was wrong. Because at any given day, it's going to be up or down. So any given hour, it's going to be up or down. So you could be wrong, right or wrong, 100 times a day, depending on what the stock does. Well, that's, that's, that's bullshit. And that will drive you insane, that kind of thinking. The day you buy it and the day you sell it. The day you sell it, you determine whether you're right or wrong in that investment. <clears throat> what happens in between then is what happens with stocks. So I can't... I mean, ideally, you're buying something so cheap that if you're wrong, it doesn't go down much longer. It just kind of stays stagnant. But that's not, that's not how it works in reality. In theory, that's great. But in reality, that's not how it works. Even some, you look at even, even go back and look at Warren's, some of Warren's great investments. Several of them dropped in price after he bought them, and he continued buying them. So 
Several did. It wasn't like Warren bought at the bottom. I mean, it's just, it's just not, it just doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way. I buy, any stock I buy, I never buy the full amount I want to own of it. I always buy it under the assumption that this could get considerably cheaper. And if it does, and if I feel like it, I'll buy some more. I mean, the list goes GGP. Started buying GGP at 40, 45 cents a share. They just they declared chapter 11, it dropped to 25 cents a share. What did we do? We bought a shitload more. Best choice I ever made in my life. I mean, you, every, every stock we've owned, we've, we've, we've bought more of on significant pull-downs after we bought it. Were we right? Were we wrong? Yeah, and some we have been. Some of them kept going down. Some of them, some of them the thesis was just wrong. The names got worse. We lost money. That's what happens. But more times than not, we've made more money on the, those subsequent buys, and it's worked out just fine. American Capital dropped the price after we bought it. We bought more. There's been several. They just kind of keep popping into my head. So, And then there's been some that dropped and we gave up on that a couple years later, we were pretty pissed off that we sold out of them. You know, there's been a few. E-Trade was one. E-Trade was one that kind of waffled around for a while, got frustrated with it, gave up. You know, next couple years later, it doubled. And so it looks like when you look at the investment, oh, you were wrong. Well, the thesis was right because it worked out just fine. The way we handled the thesis was wrong. And so then you have that scenario. When you're right, you just give up too soon, and then it turns out, you know what? You were right. Your thesis was right. It played out exactly how you thought it was going to. You just gave up on it too soon. So is that right or wrong? My argument would be that I was wrong. That I, I had the right the thesis. I just gave up on it too early, and I made a little bit of money when I could have doubled it. So, right thesis, wrong actions, I guess that one falls under. So the whole, the whole right-wrong thing, it's, it's, it's not a clear-cut thing. It just isn't one of these, you know, this is what this means, this is what, you know. Because I mean, you're trying to gauge a market's reaction to an investment. And, you know, it's like Warren Buffett said, if... If markets were always rational and right, I'd be waiting tables for a living. And that's true. Markets are often wrong. Often they're wrong. And that, that's why value investing exists, because they're wrong. Quite a bit. So I, I kind of think I'm starting to ramble on that case. But it's, it's one of those things that I've always kind of, you know, you see, you know, you make an investment and people say, oh, you're down 10%, you're wrong on that one. And like, well, no, I haven't sold a damn thing yet. 
So I'm really not wrong on it. Let's see what happens when it's done. Because remember, every, everything we buy has a, a multi-year time frame. Right? There's nothing, nothing I've ever bought and said, hey, you know what? In the next month, this thing could be up 20%. Those, those words have never come out of my mouth. I don't ever buy anything with that. You know, you look, at, look at TPL. TPL could be a four or five year investment. Unless you assume the amount of oil coming out of the Permian is going to drop. You know? Who knows? It's probably going to get bought out eventually. Someone wants that land. You know, all the oil majors are making multi-billion dollar land buys in the area. Someone's going to grab it. But, but that's neither here nor there. So that's, that's the podcast for this week. Please go check out the Boyer Forgotten 40. On the website, um, buy yourself a copy, please. It's really worth it. Um, not only will you get 40 amazing ideas, um, but you'll also get another free year of Value Plays added to your subscription. So um, I hope everybody has a great, safe weekend um, and a great week next week, and I will talk to you then.